Hello, this is William Tharp, and welcome to Home Quizzes, Questions About Real Estate Podcast. Today's episode is number eight, and today's question is, how did Henry Flagler change Florida forever? Now, this is the first of three episodes that we're going to look at, which is really related to property zoning and land use. This episode is a historical look at the uh, Florida East Coast Railroad over the years uh, since its inception in uh, what would be, I guess, 1885. Uh, It provides uh, reviews of examples of why zoning changes uh, are needed when cities evolve. Um, In this particular case, uh, the episode begins in, like I said, 1885 and completes itself around the year 2000. So uh, we're going to start first with understanding that Henry Flagler had a literal blank slate when he was dealing with zoning for these areas because most of the areas he were developed did not have cities. They were largely along the coastal regions. The land was managed by a county or a state. And in in many cases, um, cities arrived from him doing the development of the railroad and the uh, hotels that he built. So let's begin with where uh, kind of it started in in St. Augustine. And there were several zoning changes simply because it was already an established um, uh, Spanish um, um, settlement. And and the areas he was developing was already very close to where they were existing land. So other than that, it's pretty much open territory. So let's begin the story with answering the question of who is Henry Flagler? Now, Henry Flagler was one of the three founders of Standard Oil, along with John D. Rockefeller. He came from a very, very humble beginning in in 1867 and um, worked with um, Rockefeller to buy their first um, oil refinery in Ohio. Uh, It it set the precedent that was um, to be followed where um, Flagler had created a process in which um, uh, he would go ahead and work with Rockefeller and and largely the company became what would be known as the world's greatest corporation or monopoly at that time. Uh, in a span of just uh, 12 short years, Standard Oil uh, controlled almost 90% of oil refining in the United States and became one of the most successful companies. Um, with some oversight, they uh, brought that down to about 70%. But, but this isn't really about Standard. The reason I bring it up is so you understand the wealth that um, Flagler had and the reason he was able to do these things. Now, after years and years of successful development with uh, Standard Oil, one uh, one day in 1878, the doctors came to um, Henry and said, look, your wife Mary has become extremely ill. And we suggest that in the wintertime, you know, when the, you need to take her to Florida in, in a new uh, Jacksonville area, you know, to, to make it a little easier on her. Um, Flagler, wanting, of course, the best for his wife, decided to go ahead and take the, the doctor's recommendations and took Mary to winter a few seasons in the Jacksonville area. Now, now during these t- times, uh, Flagler spent quite a bit of time just along the Florida coast, relaxing, enjoying Mary's company and then the time, and, and the warmer weather did aid Mary. Sadly, however, uh, she passed uh, three years later in about 1881. Now, Flagler mourned, and then later, two years later, took uh, his second wife, Ida. And um, when they decided to honeymoon he decided to spend that time honeymooning in St. Augustine which was near Jacksonville area and he'd seen before so Flagler was profoundly um, affected by his time in Florida and he grew to see the opportunity the state had to provide for tourism 
growth and population. He returned with his new wife two years later in uh, 1983, and he decided that he wanted to build a hotel in St. Augustine. Originally, he tried to, to buy the, st- the original hotel that was there so they could honeymoon there, but the gentleman who had it was not interested in selling. So this was a time of transition for him at Standard Oil, and he decided to, to take a step down from the day-to-day operations, remain on the board, but set his eyes on the development of Florida itself. Now, two years later, in 1885, Flagler got serious, and he began his development in earnest by buying the aged Jacksonville St. Augustine Halifax River Railroad Company. Now, in the beginning, um, Flagler knew he wanted to go ahead and create a new hotel, so he began the planning for the creation of the Ponce de Leon Hotel in St. Augustine. The issue for buying the railroad was he knew that building a structure of that size was going to require a lot of resources and logistics and they would need lumber from other areas. So having the railroad in place would allow him to facilitate the construction of the hotel, but more importantly, it would allow him to bring the um, travelers down from the upper northern states in luxury to his hotel once it was built. So he began a stepped process where he would buy a railroad and then he would build a hotel. Now, in the case of St. Augustine's, um, it became the greatest success. And eventually, you know, it became a stepped process that that taught him well. Now, in addition to the Ponce de Leon, um, he later purchased a hotel next to it, which was the Hotel Cordova, I renamed that. And then in 1889, a year later, he decided to build a third hotel in St. Augustine, which was the the Hotel Alcazar. Now, this was hugely successful, and his dream of bringing tourism and development to Florida began, and it was beginning in a large way. Now, back in, in that same area of Jacksonville, where he had originally spent with his first wife, he built a beautiful, huge hotel called the Continental in 1901. Seeing the successes in St. Augustine, Flagler decided to extend the railroad further south to Daytona. Now, being a businessman, he realized it was a lot easier to go ahead and follow an existing track if he could find one, rather than creating his own. And he had noticed three other railroads in the area. And so uh, one of the things that he did notice, however, the railroads didn't have the same gauge track. Now, gauge is, you know, not only the, the strength and size of the track, but it's it's whether it's narrow or, or the distance apart from it. And for the standard locomotives of the day, these particular railroads didn't have it. So The reason he bought it was for the ease of logistics of the railroad bed, but also uh, for the rights to use the passage. They already owned it and controlled it. So in addition to his existing railroad, he went ahead and added the the St. John Railway, uh, the St. Augustine's and and, uh, Palika Railway, and the St. John's Halifax River Railway to what he already had on the Florida East uh, Coast Railroad. He also combined them all and, and now called it that, and he was now able to offer service between Jacksonville and Daytona by the spring of 1889. So um, in 1890, the new track was in place, and following the same two-step process of development, he decided to go ahead and buy the Hotel Lamond on Armand Beach. So um, Flagler retained a charter, Realizing he wanted to move a little further into Daytona, there was no track at that point, so he obtained a new charter from the state of Florida in 1892, authorizing him to build railroads all the way through uh, Indian River Territory and into Miami. As the railroad progressed, upsprung new c- cities that didn't exist before the railroad came. 
New Samir and Titusville. And these began to develop along the tracks. In that area that around Titusville um, is now the area, of course, we know as the Space Coast and Kennedy Space Center. All of that came about through the development of the railroad that brought the ability to, to build and or um, go ahead and settle those areas. Now, by 1894, the railroad had reached Palm Beach and, and Flagler opened his famed Hotel, or, or Hotel Royal Ponciera. Now, this in its time was one of the most elegant, largest, and I would say most modern convenient hotel of the period. Um, and as of 1905, the hotel was the world's largest hotel and the largest wooden structure. It had all the modern conveniences, indoor plumbing, electrical, telephone systems, you name it. And it became the standard for all development moving forward. Now in 1895, to support the Royal Poinciera, Flagler built the Palm Beach Inn along the ocean. Now, he later expanded it in uh, 1901 and remodeled it at the end and renamed the property um, the Breakers Hotel, which, is, as many know, is probably one of the most prestigious hotels along the waterfront in Florida to this day. Now, the Breakers is along the water and still exists, and one of the things that he existed uh, was uh, the land between the Ponciana and the Breakers, because they were on opposite sides. Uh, they... The Royal Ponciera was actually on uh, Lake Worth looking onto the mainland. And then the Breakers was on the ocean side, and it was on this narrow inlet or island. And in between them, he placed two of the best golf courses that could be found in Florida for, for guests that were staying at either hotel to play at. Now, his third uh, piece of property that he built in Palm Beach at that time was White Hall. Now, by this time, Flagler was on his third wife. So White Hall's uh, 30 or 75-room, 100,000-square-foot Gilded-Age mansion was built for his third wife, Mary Lilly. Whitehall was a complete modern construction. The thing that is interesting, and I didn't, I didn't really think about it in, until the time of study for this, is the, the house was built with, you know, a, a actual skeleton of, of steel girders and, and a ceiling of, of cast um, plaster. Now, this allowed them to create this huge structure in less than 18 months. Now, Flagler was uh, fascinated by these types of improvements in technology, and due to this, Whitehall had, of course, indoor plumbing, electricity, but one of the unique things was it had centralized heating. Now, AC was not a Florida creation at that time, since most of the people in Florida came during the winter, during the cooler months. Uh, not many stayed like most of us Floridians that live here now through the summer heat. Uh, but the interesting thing about it was they had thermostats in every room, which was an unheard of thing back at that time. Now, Whitehall was constructed uh, on right in, a little south of the existing Hotel Ponciero, and the breakers, of course, were to it. So it created a, a really beautiful three-part area that he could go ahead and host, you know, the neighboring communities of Boston, New York, Pennsylvania, and bring all the millionaire friends that he had down to enjoy winter in his palatial um, resorts or home and, and and actually had quite the social season and the social season always began you know in February and was kicked off by the first ball which was always handled at White Hall. Now one of the things that was also going on during you know the 1890s that was of interest was the development of uh, Julia Tuttle and um, uh, her, her decision to go ahead and invest in the areas around what was now known as Miami. 
Um, Tuttle bought Fort Dallas, which was an old army fort from the days um, of Jackson, and um, decided to go ahead and uh, move to what was known as the Biscayne Bay area. Now, at that time, and it still is, Biscayne Bay is one of the largest um, natural inlets on the east coast of the United States. And she decided to move there with her two sons. And, and in the following year, she bought thousands of additional areas. Now, being from the Ohio Territory, she began to immediately petition Henry Flagler, John Rockefeller, and other investors, encouraged them to, to, to begin looking at developing the land around her property with her. Um, one thing happened, though, in the Palm Beach circuit that was really, really um, a change and, and really a success for others, and that was in the winter of 1894, Palm Beach and St. Augustine encountered one of the harshest frosts that happened, you know, by, by Florida standards in, 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 in quite a while. In fact, it was legendary that um, Julia Tuttle, having heard of the frost and the, the fact that Flagler, you know, was experiencing the cold, decided to send him a, uh, a bouquet of orange blossoms from her orchards here in the south by Biscayne Bay. And she encouraged Flagler to travel further south to meet her and discuss uh, bringing his railroad and building another hotel further south on Biscayne Bay with, where her properties would meet. Now, well, whether the, the legend is true or not, Flagler took action. He sent his men down to the south to verify what Tuttle had said, and his men brought back a truckload of fresh oranges, causing Flagler to telegraph Tuttle, what are your terms? So at this point, what are now known as the mother of Miami and the father of Miami have met and they have come up with an offer. An additional investor well known in the Miami area with Tuttle was William Brickle. And William Brickle also owned a number of land acres down in the area of Biscayne Bay. And he and Tuttle offered Flagler half of their shares and holdings of land if he would bring the East Florida Coast Railroad to Biscayne Bay and to build a hotel. Now, that was quite an offer for Flagler. So he accepted it and extended the railroad and further on down to the area around Fort Dallas and on present-day um, uh, Biscayne Bay. And the, the locals were so thrilled to have the railroad and the connection up to, to Jacksonville for their trade, their merchants, and also new supplies that they were anxious to name the city Flagler. Now, I can only imagine the Flagler Dolphins at this point, or maybe the, the, the Flagler Heat. But fortunately, um, Henry Flagler decided he didn't want the city named after him. So they instead named the city after the, the name for the Indian River that, that flowed through the city, Miami, which we all know and love today. Now, true to his word, you know, Flagler opened up the Hotel Royal Palm in Miami, and it quickly became the leading resort in Miami with no no time at all. Now, shortly after this period of time, another major development happened in 1905, which um, could not be neglected by Flagler. The Roosevelt administration um, announced that it has was going into partnerships with the, the newly created country of Panama to create the Panama Canal. And due to the proximity of Key West uh, and its coaling stations, Flagler really saw the opportunity of being um, connecting the Keys to the mainland. He felt that uh, this way, not only could they bring coal down to reef coal ships, but also bring produce that had come through the Panama Canal through um, the west coast of the United States faster up the east via rail. 
so that it could already be there packed up and already on its way to New York and other destinations. So he began the process of what began as the Overseas Railroad or what most people laughingly called Flagler's Folly. Now this began in 1905. Now one time, at one time during the construction of the Overseas Railroad, there were as many as 4,000 men employed and working on the, the various bridges and connections between the keys that existed. During the seven-year constructions, there were also three hurricanes, one in 06, one in 1909, and one in 1910, and which threatened to halt the project many times. Now, the project cost then what was the equivalent of $50 million. And at the time of its completion, over 170 men had died during its construction. Finally, the first train arrived in January 22nd of 1912 with Henry Flagler aboard. He had finally completed his railroad, which connected Jacksonville all the way down to the Keys, and the modern east coast of what we now know as Florida was created. Now, we're talking about development, and the reason I tell the story now is to kind of take you on how you can create something of nothing by rezoning it, remodeling it, and making it your own. Now, Henry Flagler was... Building railroads was lucrative for many reasons. One, of course, was the transportation aspect of it. But the second was, is the states were doing anything they could to encourage people like Flagler to come in. So um, they would give him land grants to handle that. Now, um, to handle these land grants... Flagler created his own land development company, which was called Model Land Company in, in 1896 to manage his expansive real estate holdings. For Flagler's efforts to get the Florida East Coast Railroad acquired, he, he acquired several million acres of real estate between the years of 1885 and 1912 from the state of um, Florida. Of course, he also received Tottles and he also received Brickles lands as well. Uh, and, and it really marked with the com completion of that full extension to Key West. Now, to encourage Flagler's Railroad, the state offered him, or actually had, had offered and provided him like uh, over 2 million acres of public land. And uh, the way that that was dealt out was he would receive, you know, for the, the development he did between Jacksonville and uh, Daytona, he received 3,840 acres per mile of railroad built or allotted for owning it. Now, when he got that special uh, grant to go ahead and build south of Daytona, they sweetened it because there was nothing there. They gave him an extra 8,000 acres per mile for his charter that extended it down all the way to Key West. These are massive land holdings. In fact, if you go look at uh, the state of Florida today, you're going to find that out of the 10 largest landowners, Railroads and uh, paper companies are the majority landlords. And it was because of these um, enrichments, if you would, or enticements, I guess is a better word, that they provided it to. So Flagler, now having this, understood the value of subdivision, which we'll talk about in another chapter or another um, episode. But you're given these large 100 or 1,000 acre chunks and they're worth real estate in that point, but they're not worth nearly as much if you can subdivide them into smaller tracks, create roads of infrastructure, and then put them into small tract lots that homes could be built upon and families could live in. He completely understood the value of that. 
And by having, you know, the, the model land company and East Florida Company Rail work together, Flagler used his land holdings to, to guide the development of major cities and towns all along the East Coast of Florida for decades after the death, his death in, in 1913. Now, in, in a, a remark I think that is very enlightening, Flagler really understood the value of this real estate by remarking that every new settler is worth $100 a year to me. Now, these are, of course, dollars as of 2000 or 1905. I can only imagine what that is now. But he's brought in everything that he uses, and he sends out everything he produces over his railroad, or, or, or my railroad, as he would say. So imagine that. Once they had sold one of the tracts of land that they had from the state, not only were they wealthy in the fact that they now received money for owning it, and in many cases took payments monthly as, as mortgages began to be developed, but these people, of course, needed food. So they needed to have their, their groceries brought into them, or they needed to have shippings if they were a business or company shipped out to them. So, so think of how he, he literally fed the railroad to become more and more important because of the needs of the population as it grew and grew. So he really began understanding the, the need and power of the, the development. So um, uh, Flagler pretty much ensured that the railroad was going to provide and need the supplies for all the cities as they advanced. And he even guided when cities would be developed, what their their boundaries would be, and it became quite there. So in episode nine, we're going to continue the story of the East Coast Railroad and answer the question, can I change my existing zoning and land use? So thank you for, for listening. Sorry it was a little bit long, but uh, I just thought I'd give you an update on the history. Thank you. Good night.